Welcome to Remember What's Next. This is a podcast where we try to make sense of our world by looking to our past. We are guided on this journey by senior lecturer, researcher, and historian Rabbi Ken Spiro and Ellie Bass from the JFI. Each week we look at a current event and ask how can knowing our history help us understand what is happening now. All right, let's look back and see what's next. Um, okay, so um, why don't we dive in? I have a few things that I would love to um, kind of throw at you. I think I sent you a couple of things by, by WhatsApp at the last minute, um, but I think they all speak to the same topic. So last week we started to talk about sort of the three branches of anti-Semitism that we've seen historically. The first being Judeophobia, just hating Jews. The second being anti-Semitism, this sort of trying to like culturally make Jew hatred appropriate because it's backed by science. And then now we're going to look, you know, uh, and then next week, if we continue along this path, you know, we'll be looking at anti-Zionism, um, you know, which is this sort of um, a national version of anti-Semitism that's arisen in the world. So right. but today we're going to dig into anti-Semitism, like where did the term even come from? What was the timing around it? And what was it called? Because so many people think of Jew hatred and they think anti-Semitism, but before that word existed, it was still there. So what did we call it before it was anti-Semitism? And, and how did this term come about? So it's a really interesting question. There's not an official term. I mean, even today, and anti-Semitism, by the way, if you spell it, without the hyphen between the anti and the Semitism, your spell check will try and correct it. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the way the word first appeared is as one word. So it's a question of how it first appeared. Also, I think it sort of changes the definition. I think I probably mentioned before, you know, I've debated on university campuses and I have, you know, like Arab Palestinian students claiming that I'm the anti-Semite because anti, Semitism as a term in terms of anthropologically speaking, Semitic peoples are Middle Eastern people. You know, interestingly enough, the term comes from the Bible itself. The notion that Noah, you know, the flood, he had three sons, Shem, Ham, Yafet. And Judaism explains how they each became different groups of people. The, the notion is that Middle Eastern people come from Shem, and the word Shem kind of morphed into Sem, Semitic. Huh. So I have these, I'll have these like a Palestinian student in a debate claiming he's saying, you, you know, that he says, points his finger at me and says, you're the anti-Semite. I'm Arab. I'm Semitic. You're Jewish. You're a religion, not a race, which is interesting because mm -hmm. if it's so funny, we're going to get to the topic of anti-Semitism as a modern understanding, which is directly linked to the notion of Jews being a race, right. which by the way, Judaism would say, is not true insofar as yes, we all understand we have a common origin, which would make us a race in theory, but given that membership in the Jewish people is not contingent on any genetic profile, uh, you know, that which is why converts are allowed to Judaism. We come right. in all size, shapes, and colors precisely because of the mixing of so many people in there. But but getting back to the topic, he would say, you know, your religion. I'm, I'm, I'm Semitic, I'm Arab Middle Eastern, you hate me, you're the anti-Semite. Right. Which is a misunderstanding of the term and also why it's dangerous to separate the anti from Semitism. As the term first appeared, it appeared as one word, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But there really wasn't such a term. I mean, think about it, even today, different hatreds of different people don't have words to describe them except for Jew hate. Uh, right. You know, literally from the time the, 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 the phrase was coined, in the 19th century, latter part of the 19th century until today, it remains the only form of racial or religious intolerance that has its own wow. word to describe it. You know, you hate a black person, what are you? You're racist. You're a racist. You hate right. an Asian, what are you? A racist. You hate a Christian, there's no word, there's no word for being against religions. People often throw up, oh, Islamophobia, which by the way, uh, yes. Yes and no. Yes, and so far it's specific to Islam, but phobia means fear of. So it's not hatred of, it's fear of, okay, one could argue that I'm playing around with semantics and people who hate Arabs are Islamophobic. Okay, but that's a term that appeared uh, less than 20 years ago, uh, whereas literally for over a century, Jew hate was the only form of racial or religious intolerance 
that has its own word to describe it, which I always say should get us thinking there's something unique about it. There's a lot of unique things. Right. So before that time, we don't really have a term. You, you, I've heard, you know, you've heard of, they use words like Judeophobia. I've seen, right. I have a book with that title, which goes back to the ancient origins that we mentioned previously. I have to correct myself. I was listening to the podcast I mentioned on, and I, and I mentioned the book, uh, you know, Appian, the, the, hmm. the Greek Roman writer. And I talked right. about Philo, Philo writing the book Contra Appian. That was, my mind slipped at the time I was saying it. It's actually um, Flavius Josephus, Josephus, the great first century uh-huh. Jewish historian who wrote this treatise defending Judaism against the Judeophobic accusations of this Greek Roman writer of the Mediterranean 2000 years ago. I just like to be accurate with my information here. But so we see that, as we pointed out, it exists in the Bible. Jews are accused, you know, Pharaoh's accusing Jews of being a fifth column, you know, in in the Purim narrative, you know, Haman's accusing Jews of being a, a, a minority who's unlike anyone else, weird and different and can't be trusted. You know, right. it's all playing up on the notion that Jews are different and we don't like differences and you can't well, really trust them. This is also the joke with every Jewish holiday, right? They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. Like it right, right. Means every Jewish holiday starts with a story of someone trying to wipe us off the map. More or less, definitely works for Passover. I've heard a different version of the joke. Every Jewish holiday, they tried to kill us. We won. Let's let's feast. They tried every fast day. They tried to kill us. They won. Let's fast. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, very yeah. interesting. Okay, that makes sense. But so the 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 the, the Jew hate, regardless of how you want to label it, goes back as early as the Jewish people itself. Mm. But the modern lexicon we use of anti-Semitism, it's a word that appears, uh, it was coined by a German, I don't know how to describe him because he had so many different jobs. He was a publisher and a writer and, a, and generally a troublemaker named Wilhelm Marr, who lived in the 19th century in, in Germany. And he's the guy who coined the phrase in a book he wrote. He wrote numerous, he published numerous things, but it was a book that in German, it's, you know, it has his title, but in English, it translates to the victory of Germandom over Judaism. Wow. Um, That's the actual title of the book in the 1800s? Yeah, 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 exactly. But he viewed it as a very deep ideological struggle. Interesting, by the way, with a guy like Marr, if you look into, you can like Google his name and he... He is one of the founders of this sort of this ideology of this sort of ideological struggle being the basis of power in the in the evolution of Western civilization and the Jews playing a disproportionate role in that. Um, he builds a lot on uh, this is the thing you're going to see the big switch that takes over in the 19th century with the age of enlightenment and science and also evolutionary theory. Out of that is going to come any number of concepts which are going to play into the hands of racial thinkers in general and Jew haters specifically. Hmm. You know, Darwin himself was not an anti-Semite. He was not an atheist either. He actually believed in God. I always find it amusing that people find Darwin. He's like, he he himself questions in the origins of species that came out, I believe, in 1858. You know, why (laughs) God chose to create and evolve life in the way it did. Interesting question, but he wasn't particularly, he wasn't anti-religious, so to speak. But people picked up on this notion of, you know, natural selection. Right. You know, that people, that traits, just as Darwin evolution postulated that certain, you know, that, that random genetic mutations that are, be, are suited to make a species, you know, superior or survive uh, would naturally breed themselves into, uh, you know, they would, they would be the, the dominant. The others would either become subjugated or disappear because they couldn't adapt. And so was this idea- ultimately like the, they were trying to do the kick in the teeth to spirituality and religion just whole, wholly at that point? Like, let's just eliminate this archaic thinking that there's a God, that there's spirituality. Like, was this sort of the, the point of the enlightenment was like, let's, you know, get rid of all those old ways of thinking. Our new structure for seeing life is going to be through a scientific lens. We are animals. 
and we evolved from animals and that's all we are. Is that kind of an on one foot, what was trying to be accomplished I there? I would be a little hesitant to generalize it that way. A guy like Mar, yes, he dabbled with atheism and all kinds of mm. wild ideas. He, by the way, was, it's interesting, people don't get this, but these are ideas that are overwhelmingly pushed. I'm not being political here at all, by, mm. the, by the progressive side of European political narrative right. and even America. Is, is buying into uh, a lot of these ideas. Uh, and Mar himself, like I said, was definitely dabbled in that. But to say that all enlightened minds were necessarily anti-religious or atheist, I think wouldn't be accurate because mm. the fathers of the American Revolution were very much, very much products of, of the enlightenment, um, but they were certain, many of them, America was, you know, was very much into the idea right. of God and the Declaration of Independence. It's stated right there. But you see people like Benjamin Franklin, you know, who, who was raised, raised in a very Puritan environment originally. That's his roots, hardcore Christian conservative, moves away from that. He never becomes, many of these people move to what I would call be deism, believing right. that man had kind of got involved with created religion, which was artificial, whereas a higher intelligence, an idea of design, a higher intelligence was, was an idea that, again, we have to generalize because there's so many personalities involved in the enlightenment to say it was one or the other, I would say, but certainly many of these people dabbled. Darwin himself, again, was not an atheist as far as I know. I, um, he believed in God, but certainly personalities, people like uh, Mar definitely uh, got involved in that. It's going to play into how the idea evolves by the time you get to a person like uh, Hitler, who was right. who was not an atheist, but he was a pagan, which is a different thing. So it could also be in the idea of pushing the idea of the Judeo-Christianity aside. And, mm -hmm. and in the case of a guy like uh, Wagner, who was a big musical inspiration for you know, a person like Hitler clearly was returning to the Teutonic paganistic roots of the world. So it definitely Wait all a minute. factors in. So what does that mean? When you say he was a pagan, he believed in gods? What what Hitler talks about openly, I remember we're jumping way ahead now. Right, uh, but we'll yes. come back, but that just struck we, me know, for a minute, like, wait a minute, we, what? I mean, just to throw it out, and I think we may have mentioned it before, but the words of the Hitler Youth song, which every German kid is singing from 1933 when Hitler comes to power to 1945 when you know he kills himself and the World War II ends. You know, the words are, I'm sure it sounds much better in German, we are the joyous Hitler Youth. We don't need any Christian virtue. Our leader is our savior. The Pope and rabbi shall be gone. And the last seven words are unbelievable. We want to be pagans once again. Now, I'm not so sure that Hitler, a guy like Hitler, because so many books are written about him, was so into paganism religiously, but he certainly liked, if you read what he wrote, the notion of free from moral constraints. He glorified, you know, Hitler's, Hitler's models for, you know, even his branding was the pre-Christian Roman Empire, when it was the pagan world power, right. and things like Wagner, yeah. uh, Richard Wagner. If you read, if you know Wagner's operas, The Ride of the Valkyries, you know, it's all dun 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 dun, dun. It's all about right. Teutonic Nordic legend, like Valhalla, and all this stuff has become very popularized today when you watch right. these Viking TV series and the History Channel, you know, where you go to heaven and you're in Valhalla and all you're doing is drinking, sleeping around and fighting. That's the right. idea for, for eternity. <laughs> you, know, you could do it forever without gaining right. weight and, and right. never dying. Warrior you know? culture. You know? So there was a certain, so intrinsic in that, I don't want to get too off topic, but it's this idea of being free from the constraints that, ju that the Judeo-Christian ethics, the moral constraints had so placed on the world, which they really did you know, the idea of taming and directing sexuality and, 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 and focusing on peace and love. And these were things that Hitler, by the way, found was horrified by, you know, it was, the, it was interfering with the natural free spirit of, of, of just as in the animal kingdom, nature is brutal, but nature is balanced. Right. What Judaism had through itself or through its bastard children like Christianity placed on the world was an artificial standard, which was destroying humanity. But before, but this is all, this is going to be how this whole idea is going to play itself out. Okay, uh, you so know, we talked let's, about, let's so rewinding to Darwin. We'll get there. You know, so rewinding to Darwin. So Darwin's bringing up this idea of the role that nature, natural selection, you know, that whoever is 
whoever has the genetic traits, whatever species has genetic traits that suit it best, that make it the strongest over others, members of different related species, it will dominate. That idea is going to morph into, now Darwin wasn't approaching it as a racial theory at all, but people um, like, uh, like Francis Galton, British thinker, who was a multi-talented guy. He's the father in many ways of much of this modern racial thinking mm. and the eugenics movement, mm. which grew out of it as a sort of, it's, it seems like a, almost like a nice idea of let's use science and technology and an understanding of you know natural or selection, or let's try and be involved. Sort of, let's do what nature's doing naturally, and let's get involved in it directly with our hands yeah, like on to try and person. breed, build a better, like the six million dollar man kind of right. thing. We are going to breed a better person, and it's really opening up Pandora's box mm. to what became this eugenics movement, which was well intended, but will become a very dangerous ideology. The notion that. Um, that, uh, you know, you can, you should forcibly go read about the Supreme Court case, Buck versus Bell, uh, which is um, William Jennings Bryant, if I always get the two, I always get it confused, it's Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryant in the famous Scopes Monkey trial. I think it was William Jennings Bryant, who had a, a woman forcibly against her will, right. declared retarded, and then had her sterilized. And his yeah. verdict was three generations of like imbeciles is enough. Right. The notion that human beings can now interfere, why should mentally handicapped people be allowed to reproduce? They're just going to dumb down the collective gene pool of humanity, and we can begin the process of interfering in this you know, ideology and building a better human race. This was picked up by uh, racial thinkers in, in, uh, in California, in the early progressive thinkers in the state of California right. in, in the 19th early in the early 1900s and it was used to forcibly sterilize thousands of mentally handicapped people against their will they were just sterilized so right. this is what's going on in the we're world putting in the power of man something that is normally in the power of God and nature and then the inevitable question is well who gets to decide what's a better person and if we don't have some kind of objective standard with which to answer that question, that's a totally slippery slope. It's it's terrifying. Hundred yeah. percent. And this is not we're not even close to being over with this argument because the more right. we learn in science, the more we understand about the human genome, and the more we realize that you can, you know, you can now tell a child with Down syndrome is spotted extremely early in pregnancy, which gives you the you know, ability to abort right away. Right. So it's really allowing human beings to play God in a way that is, you know, is has, has huge ethical moral. Uh, issues. But going back to our story, out of this whole, uh, you know, Darwin comes out with this theory, 1858, Origins of Species. Uh, it then's going to morph into this idea of eugenics movement, which is then going to be I, really, I wouldn't say morph, I would say, you know, um, mutate into racial thinking. The notion that just as in nature, certain species adapted and dominated and others disappeared, so too in the, in home, amongst Homo sapiens sapiens, certain species are naturally, as in the animal kingdom, at the top of the food chain. And this is going to be picked up specifically uh, by racial thinkers in Europe and the West. Not that, by the way, it's unique to that. I mean, all cultures, one of the things that really gets me like going is the notion that only white people have these ideologies. We see this as universal. The Japanese definitely thought they were the ultimate race. They're the land of the rising sun. You know, even today, they're very strict in their racial criteria. You cannot get Japanese citizenship naturalized. You have to be born as Japanese or the best you could do is marry a Japanese man or woman and have a child and the kid can get it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's not unique. But the notion of trying in the in modern history to try to make it scientific and intervene in the process and use it to push forward superiority and dominance uh, is, is, is very much a byproduct of this evolution of the enlightenment and how it is morphed or mutated into this thinking. So a guy like uh, during, once you're looking at it as race, so race is something you're going to pass on. It's in your genes. So a guy like during a guy like Marr, Wilhelm Marr, in his book in 1879, where he coins the phrase anti-Semitism, uh, he's looking at Jews as a specific race, which is now because of emancipation, because this is what happens in the 19th century in Western Europe. Jews used to choose to live 
uh, and were, or whether you chose to live or were forced to live separately, now with emancipation in Western Europe, Jews are intermingling in Western European society mm. and rising to the top uh, very rapidly with that Jewish drive. And uh, he, if you're viewing this as, as from, from a racial perspective, it's precisely, and he says this, he says it's precisely the assimilated Jew who is now free from his different looking Jewish appearance and his, you know, his, his different culture, but is now totally immersed in German, in German and Western European culture. That's going to rise to the top. And because of his racial traits and his Jewish thinking, which is innate in who he is, he will be able to influence the world much more dangerously and rapidly than he could before. And this so idea- we how does he up. come across this idea that Jews are a separate race? Because one of the big arguments that we hear out there is, well, Jews are just Eastern Europeans who converted, right? The, there is this idea, and that's why we enjoy white privilege, and that's why we're actually white. The, so on the left, this is the argument. White supremacists would say something totally different. But how is it that Jews are suddenly in, in Europe seen as a different race than the peoples that they're, they've been living amongst for hundreds of years? What does that mean? Did we look different? Are we a different race? And how is that defined? Well, first of all, the, the whole thing about Jews being a religion and coming from Eastern Europe and being descended from the Khazars, which is this kingdom from the 8th, the 11th century, that's the modern. That's called changing the past to suit the present. That's the, right. the best way of delegitimatizing Jewish national connection to the land of Israel by leg right. delegitimatizing the Jews as a nation or a people. But this is not an idea you find going back to the 19th and early 20th centuries. There, the dominant thing is race. There is no Jewish state. Jews are now assimilating in Europe. And again, like I said, we Jews, yes and no, we're not a race because anyone can join. The, the, the human genome project and research done in the last two decades plus has shown that there happens to be strong genetic connections between Jewish communities around the world, regardless of the differences in skin, hair, and eye color. Right which by the way, it, which is a great argument against the eugenics movement and anyone that what's human beings, all homo sapiens sapiens are 99.99% identical. Right. And that very little teeny bit of dermis on the outside and you know, in the eye color and the pigment in the eyes is very insignificant um, in terms of what really connects us. But back then people were looking at it as the differences are very, very deep. Mm -hmm. And they go, they go into, you know, intellectual abilities and physical abilities and how people developed. And, and again, we're going to morph into the pseudoscience that's used by the Nazis later. So it's not that we are a race. We are, anyone can join us, but we do have a common genetic origin. We have a, all Jews around the world share a sort of a haplotype, a genetic signature that is Middle Eastern, even if people mm -hmm. like myself you know, have lost their pigment from living in you know Eastern Europe and for whatever thousands of years, um, and being too inbred, possibly also, but too few Jews and having too many descendants, which accounts <laughs> for the vast number of dozens of Ashkenazic uh, genetic disorders that we have in the world today. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not that we are that. But back then, it suited their interests, and this is a, we have to understand, Elliot. This is really a scapegoat thing going on in the mind of someone like. More, who, by the way, only had, like Hitler, good relations with Jews. It's wrong to think that these people are coming to their ideology because they had bad interactions. Well, I don't want to jump ahead to Hitler, but Marr worked uh, for several Jewish firms. He, he had multiple wives, uh, divorce, marriage, death, whatever. He had his second wife was Jewish. She died within the first year. His third wife was a product of a mixed Jewish-Christian relationship. So his ideology, like Hitler's, who you know had a, a Jewish doctor, a Jewish cook, sold his artwork to Jewish art dealers. It didn't come from, you know, some bad experiences I had with the Jewish right. landlord. Like, like Rebecca my family broke up with school. him and broke his heart, and now he hates all the Jews. Yeah, yeah. That comes from a very clearly thought out ideology, which is based on, and there's a lot of similarities. Hitler is going to base his thinking on people like Marr and Dürer, oh. uh, who's, who's, a, who's a little, comes after Marr, but will further develop this racial thinking and, and, and sort of amplify it. Dürer, by the way, married Eva uh, Wagner, Richard Wagner's daughter. Um, interesting connection there. Wow. Even, but even a guy like Wagner, 
who was very close with, with Jewish composers. He had very good relations with um, Gustav. It was, it was uh, wait, who was Mahler? I'm not, it, ran, it popped out of my mind, but who was Mahler was very close with uh, a Jewish composer. I just remember which one, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, That's so, but even after, more terrifying prospect to me. Yeah, it's a terrifying prospect because we think, oh, it's the people that are just outwardly hating us that are going to be the most problematic. But what you're saying is two of the most problematic, it's an understatement, um, are people who actually had friends and co-workers who were Jewish, who, I mean, does that mean they just didn't show any animosity? Like it, it kind of comes out of nowhere. That's, that's very, a scary prospect. But it's sort of like it's it's kind of like most people who will I mean most people are have negative attitude towards other groups you know I would say a lot of white people have fear of like black people in general but they have individual good relationship with black people so you have to distinguish like that just because I have good relations with uh, this Jew and that Jew doesn't mean the Jews as a whole and by the way having good relations with Jews and having insight into Jews they see that Jews are successful disproportionately so Jews are driven Jews are influential despite their small size and you combine that with what's going on politically in Europe at this time which is a lot of political upheaval in places like Germany, which is not a unified country until Bismarck in the late 19th century, you know, Germany failed to unify post, you know, the Congress of Vienna after, you know, Napoleon's out of power, 1815. There's a lot of young disgruntled youth who are, you know, and that's the very dangerous, volatile group of people, young ideological people, especially university students are always can fall victim to, you know, being be into political agitation and looking for, you know, what's happening. Combine that with a sense of, you know, where's our unity? Where's our nationalism? It's being lost. Okay, who's controlling all of this? Who's really in power? Who's stopping it from happening? Hitler's going to come to a similar conclusion himself after World War, World War I, and he fought in World War I, that the real power behind Germany's humiliating defeat as one of the central powers in the war is going to be the international Kabul, you know, the Jewish bankers and their world power. Of course, there's no basis of this in reality, but it's taking like certain aspects of truth, Jewish intelligence and drive and over-accomplishment and combining it with, you know, theories that are ridiculous, obviously, and, but, but, and, and, and the scapegoating ideology, which is what must, most of this is about. If you read what, what Wilhelm Marr, the founder of the term anti-Semitism comes up with, he says that Jews are and, and Turing says this also. He says that the he says that the Roman Empire, with a half a millennia of controlling the world physically, didn't accomplish what Semitism was able to accomplish. He said the Jews, with their ideas, had infiltrating in and and shaping how people think, are far more powerful than the physical conquest of of, of empires like the Romans. And therefore, he views the assimilated Jew. This is something you see with Marx saying and Turing saying, and then Hitler will go on about this. It's precisely the assimilated Jew unhindered by all the restrictions that he used to have and unhindered by his differences. Remember, and he fast forward to Hitler and he does this movie, The Eternal Jew, which is a fascinating, brilliant use of film as propaganda. And he literally has these images. And this is way before you had, you could do the modern technology of, you know, he has a picture of, you know, this, he always picks the ugliest Jews possible. But but uh, you know, it's Jew in the Hasidic garb, looking very Jewish, and then suddenly it, it morphs into the picture of the same Jew with his side curls gone, his hat off. He still looks really ugly, his beard gone, but now he's the dangerous guy because he's going to assimilate and he's going to poison, he's going to poison the German blood with his Jewish wow. blood on a racial level, and he's going to poison the German ideology with his Jewish. Uh, human concept and his liberalism and his communism and all the isms that Jews are in that are undermining the German spirit ideologically and the German blood uh, biologically. Mm -hmm. And you can see that Hitler is going to be fast forward, you know, to the 1930s and 40s and Hitler is going to be just as the eugenics movement in California is, is going to, is going to morph into forced, forced sterilization of people. Hitler will, take it one step further and mass murder people that he views as inferior, be they mentally, hand mentally handicapped Germans, 
that the Germans will do this secret project. Right. Gassing. I mean, if before Hitler starts killing Jews, he first experiments on carbon monoxide poisoning in vans of, of German hand. It wasn't enough to do what they did in America, you know, sterilize them. We got to take it, you know, like the Ford Foundation is exporting all this eugenics thinking to Germany. And you can see how an idea, which, you know, they say the road to hell and evil is paved with really good intentions. Right. Um, so that has how to be used in general against people who are, are viewed inferior, be they mentally handicapped people who really do have disabilities, or be they people who are viewed as ideologically dangerous and now, in, you know, infecting is the word they're always using. I mean, Hitler, he calls the Jews bacteria. You know, he says the Jew, if you, you know, you allow a basilicus, we're all from, we're all very sensitive to this now because of COVID, right. but you allow you know, one infected person into a general population without isolation, they will spread mm. the infection and the whole population could be sick and die. So he said, so to the Jew. And this all is going to begin fascinating. with, with, with more. It's and, fascinating uh, to me because what they were pushing against was that if Jews were no longer isolated in their own communities by choice or by force, now they will infect the rest of the world with their ideas. And, and I think that was one of the things I was so struck by when I went to Yad Vashem for the first time. And I saw the impeccable records that the Jews had kept um, of trying to actually eliminate Jews from every single country. It wasn't just about Germany. This was like, like you said, the Jews were seen as a virus to humanity and we have to wipe it out everywhere lest it should spread in some way. And I think that was a, a light bulb moment for me to understand what they were yeah. really trying to do. And it's interesting, by the way, we're fast forwarding to Hitler already. It's, there's a debate about whether he always intended to kill the Jews. He, he had any number of programs to, first of all, make Germany and the Reich Judenrein, which is Jew free, but maybe just to, you know, chuck those Jews somewhere else, like Madagascar was one of the ideas. Right. Um, I personally believe that he always planned to kill the Jews. He just wasn't sure he could get away with it. And he's testing the waters to see how will you know, the world that? will react and how you have to get the German people who are, you know, this is not a primitive civilization. These are not medieval right. ignorant Christians who you can tell them that Jews are in league with the devil and poisoning your wells. These are, this is the most enlightened, culturally, technologically advanced society in the world that, by the way, Jews loved. You know, it's ironic, Ellie, think about it. If for thousands of years, Jews really chose to look and act differently than non-Jews. We lived for 2,000 years in diaspora and we maintained our differences. I mean, always there were some Jews who opted out, but you didn't, see, you, and you had periods of time going back to the Hanukkah story where a small minority of, of Hellenized, Greekified Jews, right. you know, are going to want to assimilate into that culture. It's not something new, but the vast majority of Jews despite the fact that living and acting Jewishly meant you would be discriminated against and made you stand out and, and, and in a place like Eastern Europe where the vast majority of Jews are living, you'd be openly discriminated against. They still chose to do it. It's ironic, interesting, great twist, supernatural aspect of, of, of Jew hate that precisely we get a community of Jews that it begins in Germany is fascinating because this is the Jewish community that more than any other community had the greatest love relationship with the culture, the host culture and, and country amongst whom they live because Germany was... In Germany, Austria, that culture was considered the most te technologically, culturally, artistically advanced culture in the world. And it really was. Right. It's in kind of like of Jews, in Jews in America today. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's, a that's a similar parallel. Like Jews in Spain, you know, going back to the expulsion. It's not right. new. But here, it really reaches the pinnacle. And, and, and by the way, before... You know, during this period of time that, that Mars around and during and, you know, this is precisely when Jews are let out of the ghettos post Napoleonic Wars, 19th century is when Mars writing, when Jews run out of the ghettos, and it's a big uphill struggle, it's not overnight, you know, Jews uh, with emancipation in the later 19th century, they could go to university, but they couldn't really be professors till the early 20th century, right. they could join the German army, which they ran off to do in, in massive numbers to show their loyalty to Germany but they couldn't be officers until like World War I. Hitler's commanding officer who gave him his first Iron Cross was a Jewish commanding officer in World War I. So Jews are running out of the, the ghettos, which Napoleon knocked down the walls of to join this high culture because they were so attracted, just like Jews ran to Greek culture because it was such a beautiful culture. 
was so creative, so right. you know, so much wisdom. So Jews are running towards, and it really was a fantastic symbiotic relationship mm. between the two cultures. You really see, I have this book called Comets, Jews and Christians, written by a convert who, who used to be in the World Bank. He loves statistics and he shows, it's a really, really, really interesting book, but he shows how Germany was cleaning up in terms of science and Nobel prizes yeah. in the late 19th, early 20th century. And almost all of this was coming out of German Jews because when you put Jews with that Protestant work ethic, a la Max Weber, the sociologist, and that's German culture, how hard they worked, how driven they were. You know, it's like when you put Jews in societies where it's really third world and it's like, you going to the worst inner city school in America, you don't have to do too much to be the top of your class, but I stick you in the best private school in the United States, you gotta be on your A game. So Jews had to be on their A game to make it, it pushes you. It's, it's, it's like there's no affirmative action going on here. You gotta be your right. best. So take driven Jews and put them in the most competitive environment and they will rise to the top, which you show how Jews are completely cleaning up in terms of Nobel prizes and, and, and scientific inventions in so many areas. Uh, many of whom never got credit for it because they didn't have the money or the context to, to actualize it and, and patent it correctly. But this is what was really happening. So mm. Jews are mainstreaming. It's a symbiotic relationship in that German culture and Jews are benefiting. The, it was a win-win for Germany, totally. It was a win-lose for the Jews who were basically leaving their Judaism behind and assimilating, yet adding tremendously, furthering themselves in ways they could never do before in terms of science and being in professors and universities. It all comes crashing down when Hitler comes to power. But this is what a guy like these, these German thinkers, it's kind of short-sighted and suicidal. They're viewing it as something like, cause they view the, they're looking for a scapegoat. They're viewing the failure of Germany, be it, you know, bef before Germany becomes a state or it's loss in World War I as we need a scapegoat. We're gonna blame the Jews. Uh, but had Germany left the Jews alone, had Hitler left the Jews alone, uh, a, the Jews would have assimilated, which for him would have been a nightmare, but they would have had, they would have had the A-bomb before anyone because the entire Manhattan Project, Albert Einstein, Max Planck, Lise Miter, Niles Bohr, Robert Oppenheim, they're all German and Hungarian Jews, right. you know? It, 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 they really shot themselves in the foot, but it's interesting that precisely when you get a community of Jews who really wants to assimilate, when Jews until that time had suffered so much for maintaining their differences and being so easily pick outable and easily scapegoated, now we're assimilating, now we're disappearing. Um, precisely the anti-Semitism will now morph into the greatest danger is not the Jew who's different, who lives in his little community and has his side curls and creeps right. around doing his strange, weird rituals. Now he's just like you and I, he speaks German. You know, he's, he lives and acts like us. He only wants to be part of us. That's the most dangerous Jew. Right. So well, what was the chant at Charlottesville? Jew Jews will not replace us. Exactly. You know, and, and the idea, um, you know, for, for the idea from the left that we're the ultimate colonizers, the ultimate white, you know, colonizers. It's so interesting when you start to look at it. It's just a repeating pattern over and over again. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. again, they're not, they weren't accusing the, the colonizer thing today is going back to the intersectionality of Israel being, you know, white colonialist settlers. And that's like kind of the modern lexicon being used, but it's the same right. thing again, this nefarious disproportionately and Jews, by the way, in Germany, pre-Holocaust are six tenths of 1% of the population of Germany. Wow. Like, like, a, like a less than a third of what lives in America today. Right. Like um, easily ignored in terms of numbers. But, but think about it if, but think about it, if you want to, there's a, there's a logic to this, because if you want to go after the Jew, you're not going to convince the German people that Jews are a super military power. You have to, <laughs> you have to make the threat just as the Jew medieval Europe, he's not going to conquer your country, but he's going to poison your wells. He's going to tap into the demonic powers and be in league with the devil to come after you in ways that you can't see, but are yet very, very dangerous and ultimately fatal. This is exactly sort of the modern version of this going on in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Sure, the Jew isn't a physical power. Look at me, he's physically weak. I mean, Hitler is on one hand playing up on the Jew as being physically weak. It's ironic that Hitler played up on the Jew as having a smaller cranium with the pseudoscience and these devices to measure right. their head. Yet somehow that same Jew is responsible for this, the control of world banking and controls this government and that, and you know, all these different things. It's really not so logical to say the least. 
if you think about it. So but you understand that it's all about whether it's a thousand years ago, whether it's the time of Appian, whether it's going back to medieval Europe, or whether it's early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, ascribing to the Jew, despite his teeny size, an incredible uh, ability to, to control and have power far beyond his numbers that will explain what's going on, blame him for what's happening, and make him the ultimate danger and enemy. Uh, really, really interesting when you think about it and put it all together. But yeah, it's see- also so interesting in terms of the idea of like, you know, racial superiority. There was a really great article that came out in Tablet Magazine recently written by Dara Horn, where she talks about the cool kids. And the like, really across the board historically and in modern times, like Jews are not cool. You know what I mean? Like we're not like looked at as like, you know, the biggest, strongest athlete, the coolest guy at the table. We're just generally kind of weird and nerdy. And like, so this like bizarre obsession, you know, with us as being seen as as powerful or being able to sway the masses in some way, even though there's, you know, we could argue spiritually, we have you a uniqueness. But it's just so interesting because if you just perceive the world through the idea of race and being genetically superior, you would never look at the Jews like we're not a dunking people. <laughs> you know right, what right, I mean? Exactly. Like John Stewart once said, like, we're not tall, we're not brawny, we're not like fast. <laughs> well, you, you sort of have to turn off your right, you sort of have to turn off your logic because you, you can't at the same time be having Hitler demonizing the Jew and saying he's our ultimate enemy. And like, and he's really building on the themes of Mar, that right. the ultimate struggle is an ideological struggle. Hitler views right. it as that. He says, even when we've gotten rid of, you know, the communists and we've beaten England and Europe, the Jew will remain our greatest enemy. And Hitler actually, to a certain level, understands he believes this because, which explains why in like the, the fall of 1944, you know, after Stalingrad has fallen and hundreds of thousands of German soldiers surrendered and the Soviet army is on the march. Uh, nonetheless, he's going to choose to take trains and send the last great untouched Jewish community of Europe, the Hungarian Jewish community, to its death in Auschwitz, as opposed to sending soldiers to the Eastern Front. So it's this really kind of almost schizophrenic connection to, but he's onto something. There is really something there because on the deepest level within the, 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 the layers of lie is a certain truth which ultimately is correct in that the struggle we've been involved with as a people since Abraham is is an ideological struggle. It's not about physical control of the world. It's about getting the world collectively to have relationship with God and to buy into a worldview that comes from that relationship. And a guy like Hitler arguably is the ultimate expression of the of the of the antithesis of that understanding that that you know that's why I think about it just as Abraham and for two thousand years we were the only monotheists in the world that's battling paganism Hitler is sort of a modern restatement of that when you like those last seven right. words of you know we want to be pagans once again all wow. the smoke screening aside I can't mobilize people. I can't mobilize people by telling them, yeah, we want to go back to killing newborn babies and survival of the fittest and just being ruthless and brutal the way the ancient world was. I got to like couch it for the sake of marshalling support behind me in the nefarious threats the Jews pose. But all excuses aside, that goes back as always to what is really the driving force behind all anti-Semitism, which even the craziest sounding anti-Semites are often really onto something there. It really is about something that really is there, even though most Jews aren't even aware, like as Heschel, the, you know, the Jewish thinker in the early 20th century said, the Jews are a messenger that have forgotten the message. But the true hater of the message understands, a guy like Hitler, that all excuses and smoke screens and propagandizing aside, um, that it really, there is, there is, 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 is a huge ideological struggle. And within the Jew, this is, Interesting, it's not the racial thing, but it's understanding not on a biological level, but Mm. spiritual level that the Jewish soul, even if you get baptized a hundred times, even if you become Bernie Sanders, socialist, whatever, you're always going to be pushing an agenda that is based on uh, a a Jewish worldview. 
right. like the bacteria. It can hide in the body, but it's always there. And if we don't eliminate the Jew, even if he gives up, he, Hitler says this himself, even if we get rid of the Hebrew schools and the rabbis, he said the Jewish spirit would still exist and exert its influence. It has been there from the very beginning, and there is no Jew, not a single one, who does not personify it. So all that Hitler has really done, if you fast forward half a century later from, mm. from Wilhelm Marr, who coins the phrase anti-Semitism, is take that idea and, 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 and develop it into really... Uh, the ultimate battle on 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 a, on a on a world level. He remains our ultimate right. enemy. It's not just the enemy of Germany. The Jew remains the. And if you are trying, and Hitler views you know as as, as an imperialist, he really was. He wanted to build this thousand year Reich. If you're viewing that ultimately we would like to dominate the whole world or at least a good chunk of it, um, we're going to be constantly coming up against this international Jew wherever we go in the world. Right. who's now spread around and hiding amongst us and has to be rooted out. He used to be able to spot him easily. Now we got to root him out, which is why he goes through this incredible lengths to, to go back to people who even Judaism wouldn't consider Jewish. You know, right. One first degree relative, which ironically is what the, the, the Nuremberg laws were based on, on biology, not halacha. Uh, and and uh, the laws for making Aliyah to Israel are based on the Nuremberg laws. So they get mm. citizenship in the Jewish state post-Holocaust, three years right. after 1945 is the birth of Israel. It's also based on the same criteria. If Hitler was going to kill you for being Jewish, we'll save you for that, even though you're not halakhically Jewish. It's an interesting, that very interesting, interesting point. It's but, also uh, interesting because really it's saying that just by virtue of being a Jew, you represent an idea that is distasteful to people who don't want there to be some kind of objective standard of right and wrong or all of the sort of core pieces that our Torah speaks about, that everyone is, is, is uh, created in the image of, of God, that everybody has the right to you know, sanctity of life, the things that we stand for that are the basis for monotheistic ethical monotheism, like you know, we will just always be the representative, whether we like it or believe it or not, of that in the world. So if you're trying to wipe out that idea, then we're the ones you're going to go after first. Right. But again, most, but you can't, you can't sell that to people because that's so ingrained in Western culture today. You can't right. go and yeah, we, we, they brought a social, we hate them because they brought social responsibility in the world. We hate them because they, you know, value of life, you know, the, although that is under attack now we see, um, right. but uh, you can whittle away at it and ultimately get rid of it. There's mm -hmm. no question. Um, but you're, you're right. That's exactly. Ultimately, we have to always keep our eye on the ball and not get confused by the smokescreen, which, by the way, not even the people who, who preach this stuff really believe it. I mean, I always jokingly, half jokingly say, you know, if you look at all the things Jews are accused of, even and it's, and it's kind of built up today right. certain things have been left behind the league with the devil doesn't sell so well today because the devil is only doesn't work so well but you know that we control the world's economy and seismic activity and solar flares and we trigger tsunamis in southeast asia to drown indonesia with tidal waves control the animal kingdom release sharks into the red sea to destroy egyptian tourism send vultures to spy on saudi arabia we control the weather iran accused us of stealing their cloud cover a couple of years ago right. you know i always say people <laughs> People, lasers. We have space lasers. Space lasers. You know, I said if people believed even 10% of this, they wouldn't mess with us. I wouldn't touch people who control the world's economy, the animal kingdom, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. So uh, so it, it's interesting how on a certain level it's really very irrational and illogical, but deep, deep down, they're really onto something. And what you've seen evolve throughout history is this is, is a struggle that has gone on for thousands of years. And based on how the world evolves with the enlightenment, with science, we just have to wrap the the uh, the hatred in a different coding mm. and market it in a different way but like you see we're getting ahead of ourselves now because i don't want to get to the right. topic which we'll get to next time but you can see now with what is popular in the world today with especially the extreme left and intersectionality right. so now the jew is being framed in that yeah, colonialist the new, the white. New coach, right. It's the new. So in every generation, like we say in the Passover Seder, they stand, they rise up above, you know, they stand uh, on us to try and destroy us. They also have to market the, the hatred within whatever is the prevailing ideology of the time, but the ultimate struggle stays the same. 
You know, it's like, it's like, again, you can use the virus. It morphs into a different strain, right. but it's still there. It's still just a different variation of the same virus that has always been out there yeah. uh, chasing us down for 3,700 years since the time of Abraham. Okay. So this really, this was the perfect segue into our next week's um, conversation where we'll go into the newest um, evolution of the oldest hatred. We're going to go into the term anti-Zionism, where this came from, how this began, where did this ideology even come from? I think people will be slightly surprised to find um, that what was a religious ideology became very specifically a political ideology to try to get um, the Western world on board. And, um, and we'll dig into a little bit of the of the history of that. So thank you. Uh, I think this is super helpful. And, and definitely, you know, as I've said before, you know, one of the intentions of this podcast is to try to pro try to support all these young people right now who are online, who are, um, you know, just hanging on through the onslaught of constant, constant revisionism, constant um, accusations and tremendous anti-Semitism in the form of anti-Zionism and Jew hatred straight up. Um, so hopefully um, if they're finding this podcast um, or if you want to share, if anyone listening wants to send this out, if they're looking for backup, sometimes history and education is our strongest ally. And so I yeah. hope this gets out to people who need it most. Just to add a little comment to what you said, that's why it's so important to have the, the you know, the, the long view of this whole thing, to recognize that it's not something new, it just started now. That's why the ignorance is, is not only placed into the hands of the people who are coming after us, but it, it undermines the authority and the strength of the Jewish people individually and collectively to understand where this is coming from. When you realize it's just the same guy behind a different mask, uh, it, it makes it a lot clearer. Yeah, it gives us absolutely. a lot more ability to, to understand how to deal with it and confront it and push the excuses aside and get to the core again. So that's why it's so uh, like that. A great line of Churchill, he said, the further you can look back, the, he said, the longer you look back, the further you can see forward. And that's exactly we see what's coming around the corner, because the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> and, so true. And the basic issues, we might package them in different lexicon, use different terminology, but they're, it's always the same. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rabbi Sparrow. Thank you, Ken. This is so helpful. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us. And again, if, uh, if you like this podcast, please subscribe, um, share it with friends. And at any point, if you have more questions or are looking for more resources, please go to uh, uh, kenspiro.com, where there's tons of videos, books, recommendations, articles, information, and you can get in touch with Ken directly if you have questions or need support, need backup. Thanks for joining us on Remember What's Next. If you would like to get more resources and information about Rabbi Ken Spiro, please check out his website at www.kenspiro.com. If you have a question or an idea for a topic, please email us at rememberwhatsnext at gmail.com. 